good afternoon, and thank you for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, before starting, I'd like to uh, uh, start to. Uh, I don't like to say to correct the, the previous speaker, but the, the, to, the, to clarify one point, that I have been very involved in studying democracy promotion and what the United States and other countries have been doing. I have never really been involved in actually on-the-ground plans to try and promote democracy. And, to, and this is not accidental, because it's just so that you know where I'm coming from, I'm somewhat skeptical about the capacity of the United States or of any other country to bring about as uh, fundamentally change uh, in uh, uh, somewhere else as the change from autocracies to democracy. I think it takes much more than well-intentioned programs uh, funded by foreign donors to bring about a change of that sort. Um, let me start uh, addressing the question that is the title of this, uh, of this uh, uh, talk. And it is, is democracy, pro uh, is democracy, in, uh, democracy in Middle East, is it happening? And the very simple answer is no. At this point, I could, uh, uh, you know, I will not pack up and go home, <laughs> essentially, having, but try to dissect uh, the issue. And I'm going to look in particular at two, uh, uh, three issues. One is, does the United States really want a democracy in the Middle East? Second, what has the United States done in concrete to promote a democracy in the Middle East? And third, if there, is, uh, if there is going to be any democratic transformation in the Middle East, who are the domestic players? Because let me uh, make it clear from the outset that the answer to whether or not there is going to be democracy in the Middle East comes from what the domestic players will do and not from what any foreign country is going to do. That may have an impact. That may, uh, foreign donors may help around the edges, essentially, but it certainly are not going to be the determinant of a true, uh, a true change in the Middle East. Let me start with the first question. Does the United States want democracy in the Middle East? Uh, may come across as a, uh, as a strange question given the amount of rhetoric that we have all heard in the la since 9-11 essentially, but particularly since the fall of, 2000 and, uh, of 2003 concerning uh, uh, by the Bush administration, by President Bush himself, concerning the importance of democracy in the Middle East to the United States. The answer is that in reality, the United States is exceedingly ambivalent about democratization in the Middle East. And it's particularly ambivalent, uh, and it has become particularly ambivalent, I would argue, in the last 18 months. If, we, uh, if I can uh, simplify the issue, I would say yes, in the November of 2003 when uh, President Bush gave uh, a roaring speech at the National Endowment for Democracy in which he set forth uh, the so-called Freedom Agenda that is the program of, uh, for uh, promoting democracy in the Middle East. I think he really wanted uh, democracy in the Middle East. Then, then things happened essentially, and then the reality sets in. And I would argue that in the last year and a half, the United States has reduced its pro uh, democracy promotion in the Middle East to the most routine programs of which I will talk in a moment. Uh, let me to, uh, talk first of all about uh, the, what has been sort of the ups and downs of the U.S. 
uh, attitudes, uh, approach to democracy in the Middle East. Until September 11, there was no discussion in the United States about promoting democracy in the Middle East. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, the United States put in place extensive programs of democracy promotion, beginning in Central Europe, but then uh, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, but then in Russia itself, but then extending to Central Asia, extending to some extent to Latin America, although not so much there because most Latin American countries by then had democratic governments. The big transition in Latin America uh, came earlier, uh, certainly in Africa. There was hardly any democracy promotion in the Middle East. The, uh, our research showed that they, the U.S. had perhaps during the 1990s had spent less than $100 million uh, on democracy promotion in the Middle East, all of it concentrated either on Palestine or on Egypt. And most of it was money that had been totally unsuccessful. Most of the programs had been abandoned before uh, they, uh, they were even completed. These were programs on judicial reform. These were programs on a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, sort of support for NGOs, in the West Bank, in Palestine, those continued because uh, because these were mostly uh, NGOs that provided services, nothing particularly directly to do with democracy promotion. They provided services to an underserved population. Probably they did good things, but not really directly democracy promotion. But for some reason, they came under the rubric of democracy promotion. Okay, then why didn't the United States promote democracy? And essentially because the assumption was that this was a region that was important to the security interests of the United States. And the most important thing was to have stable regimes that were friendly to the United States. Whether or not these regimes were democratic, how they treated their, uh, uh, their own population, that was really of secondary importance to, uh, uh, of secondary, secondary importance to the United States. Nobody had an illusion about the degree of democracy in Egypt, even fewer illusion in Saudi Arabia, but essentially the attitude was, that's their, that's their problem, essentially. As long as Saudi Arabia continues pumping oil and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and remains a good ally of the United States, uh, things are, uh, you know, they can do what they want domestically. Then 9-11 happened. And then what, uh, uh, there was a uh, sort of a light going on in uh, the, the in the minds of people who deal with the Middle East at the State Department, at the White House, and so on, that this bargain essentially will, you know, is uh, of autocracy for stability, if you want. This trade, okay, these are autocratic regimes, but they are stable regimes and they are friendly regimes, was no longer working. And it was, not, why did we become convinced that it was no longer working? Because most of that, uh, because what it was becoming clear is that these countries were not stable domestically, that they were de developing a huge problem of terrorism. We have seen it before in a number of incidents, but I think what really made this idea gel in a dramatic fashion was the fact that most of the, hij of the September uh, uh, 11th hijackers were Saudis. And this was the country that was supposed to be the sort of the bulk of stability in that area. So a new idea uh, started getting hold. And perhaps the best, if anybody is interested, the best um, sort of 
explanation of the old approach and the new approach on the part of the United States was an article by Martin Indyk in Foreign Affairs in 2003. And uh, I think probably the the, around the fall of 2003, but don't, uh, don't you know, look around, uh, because I'm not absolutely sure about the data now. And here in, in, in this article, he really tried to explain what the old policy was, what the new policy should be. There was a tremendous mea culpa on his side because he had been Assistant Secretary of State for Middle East. He had been one of the people who had, in fact, counted on st uh, favor to stability over democracy. So, with, uh, so the United States switches, and the most dramatic switch comes with the speech of President Bush at the National Endowment for Democracy in the fall of 2003, in which he announces, as I said a moment ago, this freedom agenda. Now, what did the freedom agenda consist, consist of? And I would argue that there were three elements on the freedom agenda that caused, and this caused, uh, that were never quite understood. They were never under, really understood by most Americans. They were even less understood in the Arab world and caused a lot of problems. The first element of the agenda, of the freedom agenda, was very frankly rhetoric. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of hot air, if you want, about the importance of democracy, about how we should not tolerate autocratic regimes, how they, you know, the march of freedom, everybody likes freedom, and so on and so forth. And that, of course, did not have much substance uh, any longer. Second, there were pressure brought to bear on specific regimes to introduce some reforms to introduce some change. And here these pressures were very ambivalent in a sense because the, uh, uh, because the, um, the United States wanted to put pressure on, uh, uh, on these regimes that had always been allies of the United States, but not really alienate them so that you cannot really go to Saudi Arabia and say, you know, the, you will have elections, you know, we will hold you responsible, you have to have elections next year. The, the, the Saudis would, uh, you know, say, who are you to tell us, essentially? Or the, the, you know, the, and then, in particular, you cannot tell them, you know, you really, your form of government is totally unacceptable, and then the next month go around and ask them to please pump more oil because oil prices are getting out of sight. So that there was always a very, a very gentle prodding of these regimes. And in addition, the United States, the President Bush, I should say, the Bush administration needed to show some success. For domestic reason, he had to show that his policy of democracy promotion was bearing fruit. So that essentially he praised, on one hand he talked about the need for democracy, but then he had to show that it was actually happening, that these countries were in fact making great stride, pushed on by the United States that they were making progress towards democracy. And that led to a rather absurd, uh, uh, what do you say, heaping of praise on countries for progress towards a democracy that was, uh, uh, that was a figment of the imagination, to put, it, uh, to put it politely. For example, one country that was singled out for a lot of praise in a lot of the speeches by President Bush was Bahrain. Now, Bahrain introduced an elected parliament, or introduced a partially elected parliament. And the parliament is composed 50% of members who are elected and 50% of members who are appointed by the king. There is no possible way in which the king can ever have anything but a very friendly parliament 
that he, there is no way he's going to lose control of the parliament because in order to lose control of the parliament, he should have to lose all the elected seats, not even to get one of the elected seats because 50% of the members are appointed and he controls completely. So essentially the idea of praising a lot of uh, 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 the, of keeping a lot of praise on this regime really made very little sense. I could give you other examples, but I think in the interest of time, I think I'll, I'll skip this. Now, there was only one case in which, the, adding to the confusion in a sense, that one with the, the, uh, 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 the Bush administration talked big, and on the other side, it did very little in, in practice. I mean, it was ready to, uh, to accept what most Arabs consider to be uh, cosmetic changes as if they were real changes. Adding to that con con uh, confusion was the reality of Iraq because the United States went to war in Iraq. The United States went to war in Iraq to find weapons of mass destruction. And to some extent, and uh, uh, this probably I would not put in writing, but I am not... Uh, 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 but I will say also I think to satisfy the egos of some big players in the administration who had lost out the battle to go on all the way on to Baghdad in the, uh, uh, after the first Gulf War. And people who, as we, we all uh, have seen the stories about uh, the uh, Tenet's article that has come back and the fact that many people had decided that they wanted to go to war in Iraq even before 9-11. And, and these were the same people who had lost the battle for continuing the war after the first, uh, the first, uh, uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, but so the... Uh, the United States went to war then because of weapons of mass destruction and because of, uh, of the sort of internal battles of the administration. But once the weapons of mass destruction were not found, the rhetoric changed. And all of a sudden, the Bush administration started talking about the war in Iraq as a battle for democracy. What this did uh, caused consternation in the Arab world because whenever, the, as a result of this, when Arabs started hearing the United States talking about democracy promotion, what they heard was the regime overthrow by force. In other words, what, when Bush talks about democracy promotion, what he's talking is about going to war and, and uh, overthrowing regimes. I travel a lot in the Middle East because of the work I do. And what was quite clear is that in particularly 2004, 2005, the question that I and my colleagues got all the time, no matter which country we went to, was who is next? You know, there was this conviction that sort of the U.S. had a list, if you want, of, uh, uh, of uh, leaders and of regimes that it wanted to overthrow, and it would go after, uh, you know, after them systematically, that the question was simply who is going to be the next person, and a lot of people thought that the next person was probably going to be Bashar al-Assad in, uh, in Syria. Uh, so this already uh, contributes to the hostility towards the United States. You probably are all aware of the fact that uh, the public opinion polls in all Arab countries and in all Muslim countries across the board uh, show a, uh, um, uh, that U.S. credibility in that part of the world is at an all-time low. There have never been polls quite uh, uh, the, 
Arabs have always had very mixed feelings about, uh, about uh, the United States. They hate the United States because of its policy on Israel. They love the United States as a country. I think most Arab students would love to come and study in the United States. Uh, there is, but, but there has always been this, ambivalent, uh, uh, this very ambivalent relation. I think right now there is no doubt uh, that the hostility, uh, that the hostility is, uh, is prevailing. Okay, the third component of the policy on democracy promotion was what I would call the nuts and bolts policies, where actually money is being paid for specific, in order to, pro, to set in place specific programs that are supposed to, uh, to help uh, democratic transformation in these countries. What are the programs? Uh, these programs are carried out by an organization, by a department, uh, the, called the Middle East, uh, the Middle East Partnership Initiative, which is housed in the State Department, and it's housed in the uh, uh, Near East Bureau, but it's somewhat autonomous. And the fact that it was uh, the, the, the symbol of this autonomy was the fact that the first director of the MEPI program was Liz Cheney, the Vice President's uh, uh, daughter, clearly a political appointee, somebody who was not part of the bureaucracy of the State Department, who was not an old-time uh, sort of Middle East expert and so on. And these programs uh, that MEPI promotes, some of them are fairly good, some of them are, in my opinion, outright silly, but they are not, uh, they are not going to change the Middle East one way or another. Let me give you some, uh, some examples of it. One of the ideas is that you have, that some of the leading ideas is that you cannot have a democratic, uh, that democratic countries have to treat men and women in the same way. So that for promoting uh, women's rights in the Middle East is a way of promoting democracy in the Middle East. And promoting women's education is a way of promoting women's rights. So that in the name of promoting democracy in the Middle East, the United States was funding rural uh, uh, the boarding schools for girls uh, of uh, girls of high school age in the rural Morocco so that the girls would stay in school. One problem, it turns out, in rural Morocco was that the parents, when the girls reach a certain age, the parents don't want them to walk alone to school every day. So the idea is, and therefore they take them out of school. So the, the idea was we do, uh, we do, um, uh, uh, provide the boarding schools, the girls will get their education that will contribute to, uh, to women's rights and in, in the long run it will contribute to democracy. There is nothing wrong with those schools. I think they're probably a good initiative in and of themselves. But in terms of the linkage to that activity and a democratic outcome at the other end, it's many, many, many steps removed. Uh, it's difficult to see it as a major contribution to the democratic debate in this country. Other examples that uh, the silliest of the examples I know was a, uh, the, a, a greatly publicized visit of a, um, before the last, trying to remember which elections it was. I think it was before the, the sort of Bush II, the second presidential election. They brought a number of women from Arab countries to study the U.S. election process. This was under the visitors program, brought a group of women from a variety of Arab countries to study the democratic process, then they gave them training on how to, to run, for, uh, uh, run themselves for office and so on. 
Among the women they brought were, uh, were a couple of women from the United Arab Emirates, where nobody has ever voted, either men or women. So that essentially to try and, you know, teach these women to be better candidates, again, was certainly putting the cart ahead of the, uh, ahead of the, uh, uh, of the horse. There were a lot of programs of support for civil society organization, women's uh, uh, human rights groups, uh, the usually small organizations in various countries, some training for young entrepreneurs, and so on and so forth. Some of the, as I said, some of the programs were good. Some of them were, uh, uh, you know, were certainly not terribly impressive. But all in all, it was like a, you know, a scattered bird shot. Uh, against the, the, against the, the, that you shoot against the fortress, essentially. None of that was likely to really make a major difference in the way in which uh, the process of democracy promotion would, uh, uh, the, the, the democracy would evolve in those countries. Now, what has happened? Uh, the, so these are the programs that were put in place after, in the course of 2003, 2004, and so on. And then bad <laughs> things started happening from the point of the United States in the Middle East that, that led to a new rethinking about the whole idea of democracy and essentially led the U.S. policy back to where it had been before 9-11, which is, I think is where it is now. What happened? What were the bad things that happened? You have a series of three elections in, uh, in the Arab world, none of which leads to the results that the U.S. had anticipated. The U.S. should have anticipated the results, but it did not. I think there was an element of naivete in the Bush administration, and I'll come back in a moment to trying to explain why this naivete, about what would happen if you have free and fair elections in these countries. The first example is that of Iraq. The Iraqi elections, from a technical point of view, were a masterwork. I mean, we, the elections were open elections, were well carried out. As far as anybody can tell, there was very little cheating. There was very little manipulating of the results. There were good elections. The problem is that the elections consolidated the, ethnic, the, the confessionalism of the country because more than elections, they turned out to be an ethnic census. It should have been predicted. What we have seen after the end of the Cold War is that all elections, the first uh, uh, sort of multi-party elections in multi-ethnic or multi-confessional countries have all turned out to, uh, into ethnic censuses and have split countries apart. It happened in Yugoslavia first, then it happened in Bosnia within Yugoslavia. Uh, it, uh, uh, it is still causing enormous problems in countries, in the, some Central Asian countries, in Azerbaijan, in, the, in Georgia, and so on and so forth, where essentially elections have unleashed uh, ethnic nationalism and confessional nationalism, if you can put it that way. The Bush administration was totally unprepared for it. It was really shaken by sort of this outburst of sectarianism, if I can call it a data, that resulted from the elections. The second bad experience was that of, uh, and this are, I'm not necessarily going chronological order, but the second important experience that started shaking the U.S. Uh, faith in uh, the democratic transformation of Arab, or of Arab countries were the Egyptian election, parliamentary elections in the fall of 2005. What happened in those elections is that 20% of the seats were won by the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is a banned organization in Egypt. It is not registered. It's not registered as a, in any form. It's not re, certainly not registered as a political party. It managed to win 20% of the seats by having its members running as independents. They did not run in all the seats of the country. They ran in a restricted number of districts because they were afraid of uh, a repeat of the Algerian situation where in 91, the, the Front Islamist de Salut de Fils did so well in the, election, in the first round of the election that the government panicked, uh, canceled the second round of election, and the result was 10 years of a very, very nasty civil war from which the country is barely, uh, barely recovering. So the Muslim brother uh, decided to take it easy to only run in a, number, a, in a small number of districts. They miscalculated how many, uh, in how, the percentage of seats that, where they competed that they would win. They won more than they expected. They ended up with 20% of the vote. That panicked the United States too, because the sense was, my God, they got 20% of the seats trying to exercise a great deal of restraint. What would happen if they ran in all seats and so on? So that essentially what, the, uh, uh, what started, uh, uh, what uh, arose at that point was the fear that, uh, that election would just be, democratic election would just be a way to bring into power the modern brotherhood. The third point was the, uh, in the third bad election, uh, bad case, bad experience was the experience with the election of Hamas in Palestine. I will, um, the, I, I assume that you know about the data. I will not, uh, but I can see the, the clock is ticking faster than I would like to, so I will, uh, I will not go into the details on that. Now, this example of three elections that really led to results that were very different from the ones the U.S. envisaged led to a, uh, to a really scaling back on the, the issue of democracy promotion. Furthermore, the United States also tried uh, finding itself in a hotter and hotter water in Iraq and particularly with growing fear of the influence of Iran in Iraq and more generally the influence of Iran over the Shia population of the entire region, started working a few months ago in trying to build a what it called a coalition of moderate states in the area. Well, the moderate states are really Sunni states. Uh, the, in other words, to try and create a, a, a Sunni coalition against uh, the power of Iran. And the, country, the most important countries in the Sunni coalition were countries where the, the U.S. had singled out earlier as countries that were not uh, democratic and countries that needed to make, to make progress on democracy. Egypt itself, Saudi Arabia. Uh, a lot of the smaller uh, Gulf countries, and so on and so forth. So the U.S. could not really, it's a bit of what I was saying earlier about you cannot uh, uh, accuse Saudi Arabia of being an uh, authoritarian country and then go and ask them to pump more oil. You cannot accuse Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the GCC, the, the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the smaller monarchies in the, in the Gulf area, of being autocratic regimes and then go and ask them to, uh, you know, to please help us uh, 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 pull the chestnut out of the fire in Iraq, essentially, and stand up and stand up to Iran. So that essentially these countries, you, there is a very interesting change in, ter in the terminology used by the Bush administration, that all of a sudden these countries that were the target of democracy promotion are referred to as the moderates. 
in the, uh, uh, in the speeches of uh, Condoleezza Rice and other members of the administration. So th there is this complete, uh, this complete uh, change. My understanding is that at this point, yeah, there is still, obviously nobody will come out and say we are no longer promoting democracy in the Middle East, but certainly the rhetoric has toned down. And I'm told, and I think from a source that I consider to be very reliable, that the, the expression freedom agenda that was very much used for a while by the United States is not even part of the talking points given to, uh, to the, diplomats in the, uh, diplomats in the area. So there has really been a complete uh, turnaround on that. So much for the United States. Let me come to the Arab side now, because as I said at the outset, the, uh, whether or not can Arab countries become democratic, it's not going to, uh, uh, the, it's not going to be to depend on what the United States or the European Union uh, are doing, but it's going to depend on the balance of power among internal players. So the question is, who are the internal players in uh, any political process in the Arab world, and therefore in a process of political transformation, whether it's in the direction of democracy, in the direction of a different form of authoritarianism, the players are always the same, essentially, the relevant players. And there are three sets of players that we need to look at, particularly if you are interested in the reform. The first one is what I would call the reformers within the government parties, if there are parties, like in Egypt there is a ruling party, in the Gulf countries there is a ruling family, not a ruling party, but whether it is the ruling establishment, whether it's a ruling party or more broadly a ruling establishment, all these uh, groups have they're hardliners and they're softliners, if you are uh, familiar with the, the, the Schmitter and O'Donnell terminology. They have their reformers and they have the conservatives and their liberals. I mean, always within, you know, within limits, but they certainly there are divisions. So the first group, of, uh, the, the first set of players we need to look at is the reformers within the government establishment. The second group, which is what the United States has been looking at and has been trying to promote, is the secular parties, the secular organization. The third group is the Islamist parties. Let me take them one by one. Uh, if you look at the reformers in the ruling parties, there was a, or in the ruling establishment, there was a great deal of hope expressed uh, a few years, at the beginning of the 90s in particular, that there was a new generation of reformers coming to power. Uh, in the early 90s, there was this, uh, uh, rapid, the, this period in which three sons succeeded their fathers. In, uh, uh, at the helm of, uh, of Arab countries. Uh, the one was uh, quite legitimate in the sense that they, in Morocco, Morocco is a kingdom, and the son, Mohammed, uh, Mohammed VI, succeeded his father, Hassan II, and he was seen as a reformer. The other succession, also in a kingdom, also, uh, also the, uh, the, you know, quite, uh, uh, quite, uh, uh, legal, essentially, was the, the, the replacement of King Hussein. King Hussein in Jordan died, and his son, King, uh, King Abdullah, took over. Okay. And then the third is the succession in Syria, which is a republic where, in theory, the son should not uh, succeed the fathers, but uh, lo and behold, Hafez al-Assad was succeeded by Bashar al-Assad. 
who is now the president. And there was, at the same time, it was beginning to look as Egypt was going to go in the same direction, because very clearly President Mubarak was grooming his son, Gamal Mubarak, to take over from him, and it looks pretty, uh, pretty likely that, in fact, uh, Gamal Mubarak will succeed his father. This coming to power of a younger generation gave rise to a lot of hopes that somehow this was going to change the nature of the political game. These people were different. They were Western educated. They were much more, uh, they grew up in a different period. They were much open to the uh, talk of democracy and so on. And what it turned out is that the way they see themselves is not as democratizers. They see themselves as modernizers. They all really see, the, see their role as that of bringing their countries into the 21st century. But being in the 21st century does not mean being democratic in their mind. In other words, they see themselves in, if you want, the, uh, perhaps in the, the, the particularly for, king, for the two kings, in the, uh, um, in the role of the monarchs of the Enlightenment, who, you know, the, sorry, the, who brought to uh, Maria Theresa in, the, in Austria, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, at the end of the, of the uh, 18th century, sort of bringing a better administration, bringing more uh, efficient government, bringing better government to, to their countries. One very interesting, uh, one very interesting detail: uh, when Bashar al-Assad came to power, he started contacting uh, cons um, American consulting firms to try and help him reorganize some of the ministries in the country. Uh, the American consulting firms that were contacted went to the State Department and more or less said, what do you want us to do? And the State Department said, don't touch it. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the, um, the Syrians turned to Asian countries for the same kind of management. Uh, and this was strictly management, uh, uh, you know, management advice. It had nothing to do with democracy. It was not a question of... Uh, it was not a question of democratizing the country. It was more of a question is how do we reduce the number of permits that a business has to get in order to open so that we can facilitate foreign investment, essentially. Very technical stuff and so on. But, but that was the extent of the uh, uh, sort of the idea of reform that we find in those countries. King Mohammed VI went perhaps a little further in, uh, uh, in Morocco in the sense that he really did make an effort to uh, correct a lot of human rights abuses that had taken place. But uh, he's, still, he's still not a constitutional monarch. He still, has, he still has complete control on what happens in the country. This concept of modernizer to me, this concept of uh, you know, the younger generation as modernizer rather than democratizer was very graphically summed up to me by the, um, the, Cong <clears throat> the Congress of the National Democratic Party in Egypt. The National Democratic Party is the ruling party in Egypt. Uh, two years ago, and this was essentially the the uh, the time when the party made a big push to uh, a, a big effort to, to push Gamal Mubarak forward. Uh, he was the star of the annual Congress of the NDP, and the. <coughs> What did he do? He, there was a couple of very interesting things. One is that it was quite clear that he had no rapport whatsoever with the rank and file. Uh, 
uh, Egyptians are very, um, how do you say, they express their emotions quite freely. And you can tell by the applause, by the uh, you know, body language, with the way people listen to the, the delegates listen to him, who was popular and who was not. And the popular guys came from the old guard. Uh, uh, and then here came, you know, and a lot of the delegates were the Galabir. They were uh, sort of very traditional people. And here comes Gamal Mubarak in a three-piece suit, speaking in front of big screen TVs. And that was, uh, you know, and in a and he got very polite applause because, after all, it's, you know, he's the son of the president. You don't, uh, uh, you, you don't express hostility, essentially. But there was clearly no enthusiasm. But the entire, uh, the big screen TVs and the computers that were set up, the computer terminals with access to the Internet that were set up throughout the, the conference side, to me, summarized, essentially, the way in which... Gamal Mubarak thinks of reform, which is very much paralleled by some of the other uh, next generation. So what I'm telling you essentially is that the, uh, there are no real reformers in the government establishment at this point. That what we see is some modernizers, but they, I don't think there is going to be very much change coming from the top in these countries. The secular parties. Now, the secular parties are, and by the way, the parties that I call secular uh, don't like being called secular. Uh, we are just, uh, we are about to post a, 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 a paper on our website on the crisis of secular parties. They don't like to be called secular because Arab societies are quite religious and they are afraid that the, the term secular implies being anti-religion. We use the term, the problem is that if you call them non-Islamist, it sounds even worse, because it, then it sounds as anti-Islamic. So the, for lack of a better word, we, uh, we, we are calling them the secular party. These are parties that consider them, they are vaguely socialist-oriented, uh, more and more vaguely uh, socialist-oriented, or call themselves liberals, but in reality are really not liberal. That's why I don't like calling them the liberal parties. But these are the non-Islamist, the non-Islamist uh, non parties, essentially. And these were the parties that the United States was looking at as allies in a, uh, in an attempt to transform, uh, uh, the, you know, to promote a democracy in the Middle East, uh, fear of the Islamist party, so that you go to the liberals, you go to the, uh, you go to the urban intellectuals, essentially. The problem is that these parties, in the work we have done, and we have worked on this extensively, we have, uh, the, we have done the research in depth in several countries, had many, meet, you know, more superficial meetings in other countries and so on, are pretty much dead in the water at this point. They have not managed to translate, they are not managing to reach the population. They are not managing to build constituencies. Uh, they are not uh, the, and they know it. I mean, there is something rather pathetic about it because they realize that they are not reaching the constituencies. Uh, I was talking to a, uh, one of the leaders of the Waft Party in Egypt. The Waft Party is a party that goes back to the 1920s. It led the independence movement. It's a party with a, with a very impressive pedigree, if you want. It's a party that really has played a very important role in the, in the history of Egypt. And I was talking to one of the leaders, and he was saying, you know, he, he was acknowledging the, prob the problem they had in Richard constituency, and the way he summed it up, he says, we cannot even get our own children 
interested in the party any longer. I mean, and this came from, you know, it was something rather pathetic about it. Last summer, we, we held a meeting with a group of representatives of these uh, secular parties, and we had uh, uh, set as a, tentative, uh, as a tentative title for the meeting, the crisis of secular parties. Then we discussed it among ourselves at Carning, and we said, well, that's not very polite, essentially. So we tried to give it a more optimistic title, so we called secular parties, column, crisis and renewal. And what we heard from them, all of them say, you know, don't bother with the renewal because there is no renewal at this point. I mean, there was really a very a great sense of doom among these people. They have not developed a language that can translate those, uh, that can transmit their ideas to the population, to, uh, to, the large part of the, uh, to the large part of the population. They have one thing which is very interesting: the uh, the stock in trade, if you want, uh, uh, of the uh, uh, language of socialist parties has always been that of justice, social justice, right? Uh, that has really been the uh, the big uh, the big appeal of socialist parties: the promise, the the, the denunciation of present injustices, the uh, uh, the the. Uh, promise of a more just society, of a more just form of government, and so on. That language has totally disappeared, and it has been taken up by the Islamist parties. The language of justice completely belongs to the, uh, to the Islamist parties at, at the present time, in a very, very striking way. I would argue that this is a major issue, major issue in terms of building constituencies, that the secular parties have de facto surrendered to, to uh, to the Islamist parties. Okay, the third set of players, and I'll try to conclude and, uh, and stop here, is the Islamist parties themselves. And what I mean by Islam, the parties I'm talking about here is the parties that have chosen to compete in the formal political process of their countries. I'm not talking about the Takfiri parties or the jihadi parties. I'm not talking about the ones that, I'm not talking about the terrorist organization, but I'm talking about those uh, Islamic organizations that have formed the political parties and are trying to play by the rule of the game in their own, in their own countries. There are a lot of these parties. There is one in the, the Party for Justice and Development in Morocco, which is probably likely to um, uh, elections next fall. It's likely to be, not to win the elections, because the election system is such, and there are so many parties, that nobody is going to get a majority, but certainly to get a plurality. It's, uh, it's widely expected to, be, uh, to emerge as the most important party in Morocco. You have the Muslim brothers in Egypt that have managed to, uh, since uh, President Sadat reintroduced uh, multi-party elections in the, uh, at the end of the 70s, has managed to, one way or another, to compete in all the elections, either by running under the banner of another party, by forming alliances, or by running independence, has been a major political player in the, last, uh, in the last 20 years. You have a legal Islamic party in Jordan. You have in uh, Kuwait, no party is legal, but there is a major, there are several uh, uh, Islamic organizations that play a major role in Kuwait and so on. The, there is a party that is even in the, an Islamist party that's even in the government in Algeria and so on and so forth. I cannot go down all the, the, all the countries now for lack of time, but certainly they are a major, a major presence. Now, what, what 
do, you know, what does this mean for democracy, the fact that, that these parties are major players? And what we always hear, the fear that you hear from the Bush administration and from a lot of non-Islamist of secular people in their own countries is this is very dangerous. These parties are not committed to democracy. They are using the election mechanism to come to power, but it's going to be, and you all know the expression, it's going to be a one person, one vote, one time kind of election. If they, if they win the election, they come to power. They are going to cancel elections once and for all, and then they are going to use their uh, they are going to use their power to form an Islamic state. We are going to, you know, jump from the frying pan into the fire, essentially. And therefore, the, uh, the autocratic regimes that are in power now are better than the Islamist alternative. Now, <clears throat> you cannot prove, uh, of you, you can never reach conclusions about something that has not happened, essentially. I'll make a few points. First of all is that these arguments are... Um, a, the, um, there is a professor at Yale whose name escapes me right now, Stanias, I think, who has done extensive work on the Christian Democratic parties in Europe. And these arguments that you hear against the Islamist parties are almost verbatim the arguments that you heard in Europe against the, uh, the Christian Democratic parties now. Now, everybody, what you hear now all the time is, why can't uh, the, uh, uh, the Muslims form Christian Democratic Party? The, I mean, the equivalent of Christian Democratic parties. Why they cannot form Muslim democratic countries in the image of the Christian democratic parties. The fact is that the problems that uh, uh, all the fear that are expressed now about the Islamist parties were, were, uh, uh, were expressed verbatim, uh, verbatim about uh, those parties. The second thing that we see is the example of Turkey. And the example of Turkey is very interesting, although Turkey is now a bit of teetering on the, the edge, not because of what the Islamists are doing, but what of the army may be, uh, may be about to do. Uh, Turkey has been governed by an Islamist party for several years now. The prime minister is an, uh, uh, belongs to an Islamist party, and this party has been extreme, the Erdogan and his party have been extremely careful to uh, uh, extremely careful in not implementing radical reforms. They have been extremely careful not to violate essentially the, uh, uh, the Turkish constitution, which is since the days of Kamal Ataturk is a not only a secular, but I would say a militantly secularist constitution. I mean, it's a, there is a commitment to secularism in Turkey, which is equaled, I think, only by, uh, 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 by France. Uh, there is a commitment to secularism in a militant way that, for example, does not exist in the United States at all. And this has not been violated. The problem right now in Turkey is, the reason why I said the problem is not what the Islamists are doing, but what the military might be doing, is that Turkey is, coming uh, is moving towards presidential elections, and the candidate to date clearly would win the election in the popular vote is another Islamist. In fact, he was foreign minister, he belongs to the same political party, and there are rumblings in the military that uh, the, uh, the military in, uh, uh, in Turkey has always been uh, at best just behind the scene, at worst very openly on the scene itself. I mean, essentially the military has played a major political role. And now it is threatening essentially to stop the election, to carry out a coup d'etat and so on. 
I don't know what's going to happen, but certainly there is a great deal of tension. But the fact is that if you look at what the Islamist party has done, it has not, uh, uh, it has not uh, been, uh, uh, you know, it certainly has not done anything threatening. Finally, the other point that I think it's worthwhile stressing is what we see in the change of, in the language, in the discourse, in the programs of Islamist parties. Uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the rest of the Arab world. That these parties that have chosen to, uh, to um, um, participate in the political process are beginning to face the problems that all parties that compete in elections have to face. If you take too extremist a position on anything, yeah, you'll gain a small number of votes. You'll gain the, 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 vote, the vote of the true believers, but you risk alienating the majority of the population. So that there is a tendency. I mean, ele electoral politics tends to move parties towards the center a little bit, uh, to get them to tone down their discourse. Uh, we no longer, uh, the, even the Muslim Brotherhood no longer talks about implementing, wa wanting to build a state based on the Sharia. They talk about the, the necessity of a party that respects Islamist principles. And when we, we have been, we have been researching these parties a lot. So we have been having many conversations, many discussions with them. Uh, we being uh, the, the staff of the Middle East program at Carnegie. And if you push them and say, okay, Fine, but what are the, you know, the, the all, all countries have certain principles that are usually embodied in the Constitution that, uh, that should not be violated, right? And that's why you have a Supreme Court in the United States. Now, what are the principles of Islam you are talking about? Because Islam, principles of Islam are contained in 13 centuries of jurisprudence by various schools of interpretation. So exactly what are you talking about when you talk about Sharia? And above all, who is going to adjudicate? whether a certain law is in agreement with the principles of Islam or not. And what we have seen on these issues, a great deal of change recently, because they are now coming to, they have now come to the point, and they're putting it in their documents, when they say there has to be essentially the, uh, a, the, um, the equivalent of the Supreme Court. It's, uh, they use the strange language for that. It's, uh, it's the... Constitutional Council or whatever, wh whatever is the, the expression they use. But essentially, it has to be clear who is it who is going to adjudicate. It has to be a specific organization which is formed in a specific way. And everybody knows who it is. It cannot be an obscure uh, uh, cleric in some, uh, you know, uh, the, that, that issues a fatwa and therefore declares a certain law and constitution. That's not, the way, that, that's not the way it's going to work. So what we are seeing is a lot of, uh, what you say, much greater realism that's setting in on the part of uh, these parties, uh, these uh, Islamist parties. Let me f fin end on one example of this new realism, okay? Uh, Discussion with the Muslim, the, the, the parliamentarian, members of parliament from the Muslim brothers in Egypt. They openly agree that the slogan on which they presented themselves of the elections, which is Islam is the solution, is not helping very much in, uh, now that they are in parliament. Because in parliament, what they are voting on, they are called to vote upon banking laws. And they are, uh, they, you know, 
laws on foreign investment, educational reform, things that are very, very concrete and about which they realize they do not know anything and they are trying desperately to catch up and inform themselves. And the best example of this is, comes from the Party for uh, Justice and Development uh, in Egypt, uh, in Morocco, sorry. Last year, one of the members of the leadership of this party got a Fulbright uh, scholarship to come to the United States and worked in Congress for six months. Uh, he found a congressman who took him in, Congress McDermott uh, uh, took him in, and he worked in Congress, and he understands how Congress works infinitely better than I do at this point, believe me. He really worked, he looked at the nitty of how Congress was organized, but this was deliberate. And I was asking him, the reason why I know him so well is that he also had an affiliation with Carnegie while he was here, because he also needed, uh, he was here for a year and for three months he was not in Congress, so he, was, he spent a time with us. So I was asking him, the last time I saw him, are, you, are other people doing what you have done? He said, we have a person right now who is coming to the United States, also in a Fulbright, to study fisheries. And I thought he was speaking French, and I thought I had misunderstood it. I said, no, we are studying fisheries because the issue that Morocco has huge problems in terms of uh, fishing in its territorial water and the Spanish cruise and the, uh, you know, other countries uh, fishing in the, its territorial waters. And here this party that is preparing to be part of the government has decided that they need somebody who understands something about an, an economic issue which is of central importance to Morocco. So that they have this, uh, you know, the, 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 sort of this Islamist politician who is in the United States studying the problems of fisheries and international legislation concerning fisheries. So there is a very interesting change going on. Can I tell you that there is no danger at all from these Islamist parties? Can I tell you that, uh, you know, in no countries would they try to set up a more radical Islamic state? And the answer is no, you cannot make, uh, you cannot guarantee things that have not happened, essentially. But all the indications are that, uh, that uh, uh, there is a real change in this. Uh, paradoxically then, and this is the very last word, and then I'll shut up, is that the, uh, paradoxically, the greatest promise for a democratic change in the Arab world at this point really comes from the Islamist parties. Because there is no, there is very little reform coming from the government and the secular parties, as I said, are dead in the water. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I never did go into the naivete uh, issue. The naivete came from this, the, what Ful, uh, Senator Fulbright used to call the arrogance of power, if you remember at the time of the, of the Vietnam War. Uh, and that is the idea th that you did not need to really understand that the goal of the Bush administration was to create a new Middle East. We were simply going to reshape the Middle East. And therefore, to create, a, we did not need to understand the old Middle East. 
And therefore, they never invested much time, not only they never in under, uh, invested much time in understanding the Middle East as it is now, but they deliberately pushed to the margins of the administration the people who knew something about, uh, uh, who knew something about the Middle East. I mean, the, uh, I mentioned the fact that the MAPI program is run by Cheney's daughter, but by and large, all the programs on the Middle East are run by political appointees and not by career uh, by, not by career diplomats who have served in the Middle East and uh, uh, know the area. So this naivete about what would happen, I think it's really based on the fact that we don't need to understand the Middle East because we are going to change it in any case. So why bother with the old Middle East when what we are, uh, what we are focusing on is the new Middle East? You could have included Cheney, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, who, Biden, All of them. Bush. All of them. Uh, yeah. They really believe that. I think there was a real, you, look, uh, you go back to the speech, to some of the statements that Condi Rice made during the Lebanon war in the summer of 2006, when she said, uh, when they were talking about uh, the, the Europeans and certainly the Arabs were all pushing for a ceasefire. And she said, we are not interested in a ceasefire. I'm, pa I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, but essentially she said, we are not interested in a ceasefire because the ceasefire would only bring us back to the old Middle East. And we want a new Middle East instead. So that was very, yes. With his sons, absolutely. Gamal Mubarak. Yeah. Now, as far as I know, the embassy, the, the Saadadin Ibrahim, of course, has double nationality. He's an American citizen as well. Uh, the embassy tried to follow the case, tried to intervene, uh, did, uh, did some, but they, you know, not to the point of uh, trying to, to really risking alienating the government. In other words, there were a lot of diplomatic demarches and so on, but always behind the scene, always very quietly. Certainly never took, uh, the administration never took an extreme position, nor am I sure that they should have to say, you know, we are going to stop all foreign aid in, uh, unless he is released and so on. So yes, there was some sort of low-key pressure on the government. My impression is that the United States government is resigned to the fact that Gamal Mubarak is going to succeed his father. You see, the, the, the Hosni, the father, has done things quite carefully 
and quite uh, quite astutely, because the they have rewritten the law on, you know, that the president was not elected in Egypt, as in most Arab countries, was uh, nominated by the National Assembly, which is controlled by the government, and then approved in a referendum. Now the president is, uh, uh, since the, um, what is it, the, the amendments of the, in uh, 2005, the president now is elected in suppo supposedly competitive elections. The problem is that the law is written in such a way that the only people who can compete are people in the leadership of a party, which has been, re which has a certain a, a minimum number of, and I forget what it is, a, a minimum number of seats in the parliament, and has been represented in the parliament for a certain number of years. Now. Uh, Gamal Mubarak is part of the leadership. Of, it's one of the prominent members of the leadership of the NDP. The NDP is represented in Parliament, and therefore Gamal Mubarak, according to this to the, this new constitutional amendment and election law, has all the right to compete in those elections and to be a candidate in the election. So that essentially, yes, he's, there is no doubt that the, you know, the substance is that he's putting his son in power, but he's doing it under a veneer of legality. It's, not a, it's just not a gross way of just saying, you know, we are going to anoint him. There is a process there that is going to be, make it very difficult to resist at the rise of Gamal Mubarak. If we promote elections in a country, we should be ready to accept the, cons the, the results of those elections. There is nothing more devastating in terms of the U.S. reputation the US, than promoting elections, and then we don't like the results and say, sorry, guys, but we are not going to recognize this government. This simply does not. Uh, does not. Now, the problem of at which point you promote elections uh, it's a very difficult problem because I totally agree that just holding elections in a country that, uh, you know, for example, it was predictable that the elections in Iraq would be 
uh, uh, would be contested along sectarian lines. The writing was in the wall. I mean, it's the, the, very, very clearly. The problem is, how do you put, the, particularly in a case like Iraq, where there is no government, essentially, how do you put in place a government in the, the, in the 21st century without elections? It's not, it's easier said than done. I mean, sure, you can try to promote a government of national reconciliation, a government of national unity for a while, but these are all stopgap measures so that essentially the very logic of the transformation forces you to accept that, that there are going to be elections. And that is really the dilemma of this transformation. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to say what went wrong with what we have done than try to figure out what we can do that it really would work uh, more successfully. The other possibility that he's also often discussed, okay, don't promote democracy, promote liberalization, what you were trying to inculcate those values, try to bring about this change in the society. The problem is how do you do it if the government is an authoritarian government that stops all forms of organizing, that arrests leaders of civil society organizations, that does not allow freedom of speech, and so on and so forth. It's not, you know, in theory, yes, I think liberalization should come before elections, but the problem is how do you do it if the government is, uh, uh, is very much opposed to it? I think we'd better stop there. People will have classes at 1.30. Thank you very much. You're most welcome.